This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. Australia's weather is about to change. Lanina is reportedly on her way out. For the last three years, La Nina has been driving rain and flooding into eastern Australia. The end is near, but it's not here yet. After three years of La Nina conditions in the Pacific that soaked the east of the country, scientists predict that we're about to flip to a neutral phase, followed by a hotter and drier phase later this year. With an El Nino weather system. El Nino. El Nino. El Nino. If we're not in La Nina, then we go potentially now to El Nino. Is there any way we can just stay steady in the middle? What's going on? And this prediction has come with a warning. Essentially, it's time to prepare for a shift from one extreme to the other. Unprecedented heat waves and record global temperatures are ahead. With a possible return of bushfires and drought. Today, what El Nino means for Australia and for the effort to tackle global heating. It's Friday, the 27th of January. So, Graham, we're coming out of a rare triple La Nina, the first one in over 20 years. And now I hear we could see an El Nino as early as this year. How likely is that? Yeah, so the Bureau of Meteorology are suggesting that we could flip from this La Nina state into neutral and then possibly by July into a, an El Nino state. Graeme Redfern is an environment reporter at Guardian Australia. Lots of other models are also suggesting the world could move that way as well, but they're all afflicted with this same problem, which is they call it the, the autumn predictability barrier. What is the autumn predictability barrier? The tropical Pacific is a huge body of water. We've got a change in seasons in the southern hemisphere, so there's just, there's just a lot going on. Uh, It's a huge body of water. It holds a lot of heat and it's just hard to predict. The models are getting better, but it's still a challenge. So once the Southern Hemisphere goes into its uh, winter, things settle down, they can be more confident then at what might actually transpire in the coming months. So we're in a bit of a waiting period. We've got a watching brief for when El Nino might hit, but when it does hit, what is that going to be like, Graham? So I, I spoke to a whole bunch of, of climate scientists on this. And firstly, I spoke to Dr. Wenju Kai. He's a chief research scientist at CSIRO. Now, just on this issue with the models, he says he reckons there's a very high chance that we're going to get maybe one or two El Ninos. It might not happen straight away, but if it doesn't come now, it may come in the following year. And the reason for that is just he he looked at all the years, all the times when we've had these triple La Ninas. And most of the time, we have a couple of El Ninos that follow, and they are warm years. He just says, we're due them. We are due some warm years. Long, dry, hot periods often follow long, cool, wet periods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when we think about what an El Nino might do, we should think first about risk. So this is all about risk. What does it increase the chances of? So it increases our chances, we know, of 
long, very hot, dry heat waves. Mm. It increases our chances of coral bleaching. It lessens the risk of flooding, in particularly in the east and south of Australia. So, Graham, bushfires often follow heat waves in Australia, which I imagine is a worry given everything is so lush and overgrown at the moment. Yeah, that, that's that's a big worry. That's a big concern because the the conditions that we that we don't want when it comes to bushfires uh, is dryness and heat and lots of fuel and an El Nino that comes straight off the back of three La Ninas could could start to give us that. I'm gazing out gazing out onto my lawn by the way, which is very green. I've had to I've had to mow it a lot. I noticed this as well. In Sydney, there's a park near my house, and in the space of one week, the grass got higher than knee height. Like it's just yeah. exploded. That would be waist height for me. <laughs> but if we if we go back and think of what La Nina has been doing for us, it, it's been uh, it's been creating this phenomenal growth uh, of vegetation, grass, trees, and all that as we know, um, turns into fuel for bushfires. If we then suddenly see things start to dry up and things get very hot. I mean, who could forget those, the black summer bushfires of 2019 and 2020? Apocalyptic, this is in the middle of the day. On advice of Commissioner Fitzsimmons, New South Wales will be in a state of emergency from today for the next... Uh, these fires uh, have spread uh, faster and further uh, than the modelling and the fire weather predictions uh, suggested they would. People don't really understand it until you actually see it coming at you in a wall of flame. Unprecedented. Absolutely devastating for communities. It made headlines around the world. It it killed or displaced billions of native animals. It pushed threatened species to the brink. Now, those fires actually came after two uh, years of sort of quite weak El Nino conditions that was laid on top of another system that happens out in the Indian Ocean called the Indian Ocean Dipole. And those two things often coexist. The Indian Ocean Dipole gives us drier conditions as well in the southern and east, eastern parts of the country. So if we think back to the black summer bushfires, I, I spoke to a couple of, of bushfire experts. They're hesitant to say that's going to happen again, but they do say that this, this setup, this, all of this growth, um, they say this setup is sort of jaw-dropping if we were to get an El Nino with those kind of dry, hot, and extremely risky conditions. And some might say, you know what, why are we talking about this now when it might not even happen? But can we remember the huge trauma that that Black Summer bushfire caused us all? Just the idea that we can anticipate something that even remotely looks like that and then start to think about it and prepare for it, I think is really important. Is that on the radar of state, territory, federal government officials, the fact that we've got early indications that a long El Nino is ahead and we need to prepare for potential bushfires? 
I hope it is. Professor David Bowman at the University of Tasmania um, has been having um, sort of conference calls and meetings with other fire scientists. And they're all, he says, we're all talking about this. This is mm. th this is something that we're all sort of a, a bit fearful of right now. And the fact that we are able to to anticipate that this is this this could potentially be be round the corner, I think is a is a good thing. And the fact that we are now talking about it is a really positive step. Even though it's hard when we look outside and everything looks so lush and lovely and wet. But as David Bowman said to me, it could all come roaring back at us. And what about the Great Barrier Reef? Because as we know, the reef has suffered mass bleaching even during the recent cooler La Nina years. What would a, a long El Nino mean for the reef, Graham? La Nina years used to mean um, there was little to no chance of any bleaching on the reef because it was cooler. There's a lot more cloud. The temperatures are not as high. Um, but the bleaching that we had um, in 2022 was the first in La Nina. I went up to the reef actually uh, dived on a couple of reefs um, and spoke to a lot of scientists. And there was, there, was, uh, there was a lot of shock that we'd seen a bleaching in a La Nina. But at the end of all the conversations I had, um, I would say, hmm, what about when we get an El Nino? Mm. And, and then the response was usually, mm, yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> We'd rather not think about it. As Professor Terry Hughes told me from James Cook Uni, a global reef expert, it greatly increases the risk of, of us having an extreme bleaching episode on the Great Barrier Reef. So to sum up, Graham, not even the cooler La Nina period is giving environments like the Great Barrier Reef respite. And the stress and risk to these environments is only going to increase with an El Nino on the horizon. So the kind of El Nino we get or don't get will dictate that risk. But certainly there's a lot of concern amongst climate scientists and fire scientists that if the El Nino comes along, the kind of conditions that it, that it has the potential to create could be really risky. Let's hope the, the Bureau's models are wrong. Let's hope we get some neutral years where um, maybe we get a bit of recovery time. But even those neutral years now are starting to feel hot. We know we're getting warmer. We know the heat waves are getting worse. And we don't even need an El Nino or a La Nina to tell us that. Could El Nino tip us over 1.5 degrees? Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. So, Graham, this is what El Nino could look like in Australia. What about other countries around the world? Yeah, and it, and it is it does become a world event, an El Nino, and it has different impacts in different places. Like 
China can get flooding in the Yangtze Basin from big El Ninos. It can affect and dry up the monsoons in India and also rains in southern Africa that they can be suppressed. East Africa, southern the US, um, they've both had recent droughts. They could actually get rain and flooding. South America, um, they tend to get wetter in the southern regions. These are all things we know from past El Ninos and already climate scientists are starting to look at what an El Nino could do for a global temperature. Could it could it deliver us one of the hottest years we've ever experienced? Is that likely? What are the predictions for El Nino and global temperatures? We know El Nino does tend to give us a warmer year when it's averaged out globally. And the, the hottest year, according to most of the measurements in recorded history was 2016, and that was driven by an El Nino. Mm. Dr. Andrew King at the University of Melbourne that I spoke to, a climate scientist, he, he thinks that an El Nino uh, really does increase the chances of us having, if not the hottest year on record, then, then certainly one of. But pretty much every year that we experience in the last decade or two ends up being in the top sort of five, eight years for heat on on record. Whether the El Nino that we might see comes around quickly enough and is strong enough to deliver that in this year that we're in now, 2023, or whether the effects spill over as they often do into the following year, it, it definitely pushes up global temperatures. There's been a lot of concern about the potential of the world hitting an average global temperature of 1.5 degrees. How far off are we from that, Graham, as far as experts and scientists believe? Yeah, I mean, the, so they're the running models. The, there was one report that we covered in The Guardian that the chances of us having a, a single year at one and a half degrees in the next sort of five-year period is now sort of roughly 50-50. Other model groups would disagree. But the point here is that as we continue to load the atmosphere with CO2 from burning fossil fuels, we continue to raise the chances of things getting hotter and hotter. And we we tend to think about 1.5 because we've heard it in the context of the, the, the Paris Agreement. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. The Paris Agreement calls for keeping climate warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius while striving for 1.5. What this does is to set out a set of steps starting in 2018, 2020, and then every five years after that, countries are going to be ramping up their climate ambitions. This really kind of lays out the roadmap for where we're going to be going with this over the next... But when we think about the 1.5 degrees temperature goal that all the countries agreed to in Paris, that goal is a 30-year average. So we are not really considered to have breached that until the 30-year average global temperature is at, is at one and a half degrees. So clearly, we're, we're a bit away from that yet. But also, I don't. I, climate scientists often warn, and correctly so, I think, us not to get fixated on, on a number and that if we breach 1.5, then what's the next goal? Well, it's, according to the Paris Agreement, it's well under two degrees C. If we were to hold global temperatures to 1.5, one degrees, that's better than if we held it to 1.52 degrees. Every fraction of a degree matters. 
regardless, I imagine when and if we hit our first 1.5 degree year, that's going to be global news. And it might spur some into action, but it also could lead to some despair or, or apathy as well. Do you think that moment will help or hinder the momentum to tackle global heating? I think because we've been talking about 1.5 for such a long time, it, even even though the Paris goal and the idea of hitting 1.5 just in one single year are really, really different things, it's bound to have strong symbolism for campaigners and anyone concerned with climate change because we've been talking about that idea for such a long time. There's risks here, isn't there? Like there's a risk that people will start to give up. There's a risk um, that that people will think that there's no point trying anymore. And that's the risk of having those those goals. But the goals themselves also kind of give us somewhere to point to for, for the actions that we want to take. And so I, I don't know whether it will spur us into action. We, we've, we've had no shortage of disasters around the world that we know have been made worse by climate change. And we've had no shortage of disasters here in Australia that we know have been made worse by climate change. But yet here we are still seeing uh, us continue to pump CO2 into the atmosphere. You know, those, those disasters haven't really had the impact that maybe we thought it would. So would breaching a 1.5 degree global average suddenly spur everyone into life? I don't know. That was Graeme Redfern, an environment reporter at Guardian Australia. You can read more about El Nino and what it means for Australia and the world at theguardian.com. We put some links to Graeme's reporting and that of our global reporting team on the Full Story page. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Ellen Leebeater. Sound design and mixing by Joe Koning. The executive producer of this episode was me, Laura Mephiotes. Okay, thanks for listening. <laughs>